Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading this morning is taken from Mark and can be found on page 1021. That's Mark 14 and we're going to be reading verses 53 to 65. Before the Sanhedrin... They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, elders and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days will build another, not made by man. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prosify. And the guards took him and beat him. Can I add my welcome to that of Peter's earlier? My name's Peter Bramwell. I'm the student worker here. And it would be helpful at this point if you picked up your Bibles again and turned back to Mark chapter 14. And as you do that, let me lead us in prayer. Father God, we do indeed pray that you would speak to us this morning. We pray that our faith would be strengthened. We pray that our trust in the Lord Jesus and his death and resurrection for us would be enhanced. And we pray that we would stand firm as your uh, disciples in this world, trusting in Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've just got back from a holiday in Northumberland. We had two weeks in Northumberland. It was a great time uh, doing all sorts of uh, fun things um, in the sunshine, which was even better. Uh, And yeah, I wonder uh, with me, you have been troubled as over these last few weeks... And each night we would sit down and watch the 10 o'clock news and we would feel troubled by what we saw. Seeing terrible scenes from the inside of hospitals in Gaza. Hearing stories of families destroyed. Watching and struggling to comprehend what it must be like to be in those places. And we've asked, how do you make sense of what's going on? How do we make sense of this? And then we've watched families trapped on the top of Mount Sinjar. I watched this week of an Iraqi helicopter dropping aid and then taking on uh, some of those refugees 
and the relief on their faces as they were taken on. And one girl who was crying because her father didn't manage to get on with her. And we've asked, how do you make sense of this? Or we've heard the, the evil reports of Islamic State. You know, we've heard of them painting the, um, the Arabic letter N on Christian houses. Uh, the N standing for a Nazrani or the Nazarenes, those who follow Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And those who have fleed because of that. Uh, we've heard Christians, reports of Christians being beheaded, cut in half, slaughtered. Karen Andrew White, who's nicknamed the Vicar of Baghdad, wrote these words. He says, Today's pictures are too awful to show. You know, I love to show photos, but the photo I was sent today was the most awful I have ever seen. A family of eight, all shot through the face, lying in a pool of blood with their Bibles open on the couch. They would not convert, and it cost them their lives. I thought of asking if anybody wanted to see the picture, but it's just too awful to show anyone. This is Iraq today. The only hope and consolation is that all these dear people are now with Yeshua in glory. Now we might be, want to be rightly cautious about believing everything that we read on the internet about what's happening and yet there can be no doubt that there is a terrible things going on in Iraq the religious war that Islamic State is waging is horrifying. And it's not just in Iraq that Christians and others face persecution. We hear of Christians in Nigeria or Sudan and North Korea and Egypt and Turkey and many other places facing persecution for their faith in Christ. And as we watch this unfold on holiday, we asked, how do you make sense of this? And one response, and a right and good response, I think, is hearing people crying out, Lord, have mercy. And we've been moved to pray for people in these places. And we've wanted to stand symbolically with them. Some people have changed their Facebook picture to have the, the N, the Arabic N on that, to stand symbolically with people. If we wanted to give, we've seen Tear Fund launch an appeal for funds. And yet, how do we respond? And as I've been preparing for Mark 14 this week in Jesus' trial, it's those thoughts which have been going round my mind as we see the Lord Jesus himself suffering and helping us to think about how we might respond, how we might pray for those you see, for what we see in the verses we had read was the beginning of Jesus' great suffering. A suffering which would lead to his death. He's just been arrested as a criminal and then he's brought before the Sanhedrin. And as we read it, surely you could have heard the perversion of justice which happens. You know, the dice were loaded against him from the beginning and it allows a gross miscarriage of justice to occur. Now you see the, the four stages, let's just look at those uh, briefly again. And as they progress, you see each in its own way is shocking. Jesus on trial. Now you see the first stage is there in verse 55, and we see that the case is prejudged. You see what it says? The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. The case before them was prejudged before it even started. 
Now, I think normal practice is for a charge to be brought against someone and then evidence to be heard and uh, to be tested. And if the evidence is substantiated and the charge stands, then for the judgment to be passed, the sentence to be passed. And yet here the judge passes the sentence first, death, and then seeks to find evidence to justify carrying it out. The case prejudged. And have you not found people doing that? As you speak to them of the Lord Jesus, they won't listen. They've already made up their minds. They won't hear anything about Jesus. Well, the case is prejudged. But secondly, we see that false witnesses are employed. Look at verse 56. Now, many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. It's the obvious next stage, isn't it? If you're wanting to find evidence to convict somebody of your prejudged case, then you will take false evidence they look for false witnesses and many came forward but they did not agree and we see one of their falsehoods in verse 57 or verse 58 where it says we heard him say i will destroy this man-made temple and in three days we'll build another not made by man and yet even their testimony did not agree now at this point it does sound of the ring of truth doesn't it Jesus did say that the temple would be destroyed and that he could raise it in three days. But crucially, if you read in John 2, you will see that Jesus never claimed that he would destroy the temple. He said the temple will be destroyed in three days. I could raise it. He doesn't say I will destroy it. And so it's not very surprising that their testimony does not agree when they're actually lying about what they heard. So the case is prejudged, there's false witnesses employed, and thirdly, we see the unjust condemnation. The next stage is the high priest stands up and asks Jesus about this false testimony, and Jesus doesn't answer, he remains silent. And so the high priest asks him the direct question in verse 61. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? What the high priest is asking here is saying, is asking, are you the son of God? He says the son of the blessed one is a roundabout way of seeing God, as a way of not pronouncing the name of God to show reverence to God. It's quite ironic, isn't it? They didn't want to pronounce the name of God out of reverence, and yet he was quite happy to find false evidence to put someone to death. The false piety of these religious leaders And in answer, Jesus says, I am. I am the son of God. And then he adds a sentence, which is crucially important for us to understand what's going on here. Verse 62, I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. And Jesus combines two Old Testament quotes there. From Psalm 110 and then from Daniel 7. In Psalm 110, King David has this vision of heaven. And he sees one greater than himself sitting down at the right hand of God. Sitting down at the right hand of the mighty one, you could see. And here is Jesus saying, I am that one. I am that kingly, heavenly king. I'm the one who will sit enthroned in heaven. 
And this heavenly king would come on the clouds of heaven again as the judge. The allusion is to Daniel 7 here. The one who comes from God with all authority and power to judge the world with righteousness. I am the judge of the world, says Jesus. And here is Jesus saying, I am the cosmic king and judge of this whole world. And the kind of claim he makes here would require evidence. And surely that's the evidence that he gave throughout his whole life. The evidence which is supremely demonstrated, though, as he was crucified on a cross and then three days later rose to life again. And as one person has written, they will see him enthroned at God's side, invested with power and majesty and administering the end time judgment. Are you the Son of God? I am, says Jesus. And that means that I am the king and the judge. At that point, you'd imagine, wouldn't you, that Caiaphas might bow the knee before such a one as this. At least take time to weigh the evidence. And yet look what he does in verse 63. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asks. You've heard the blasphemy, what do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. You see, there's no attempt here to see whether what Jesus says is true. He merely tears his clothes and they pronounce him guilty. doesn't weigh the evidence. He now has something to hang his prejudged case upon. Do you not find it shocking? Merely saying what he did wasn't grounds for execution. And yet none of them opens their minds to think about what Jesus is saying for themselves. Have you not found that with people? They know what they think about Jesus and so they won't listen, dismissing him. But we see the case prejudged, the false witnesses employed, the unjust condemnation. And fourthly, you see the humiliating mockery. Do you see it in verse 65? Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Here's Jesus suffering for who he is, the king and the judge. Speaking the truth led to him being beaten, mocked. And so there's the the four stages. And as you read that, you can't help but see how awful it is, can you? The huge miscarriage of justice that we see going on here. And in the midst of it, we see who Jesus is, which makes it even more shocking. It should be really clear who Jesus is. He is the heavenly king. He is the end time judge. And he is the one who is being beaten and mocked here. It does seem shocking that people would treat a heavenly king, a judge, in this way. That they would perpetrate such despicable acts that would lead them to kill the Lord Jesus. And yet as we read through Mark, you see it was no less than Jesus expected. At three times he predicted this would happen. He said that he would be handed over. He said that he would be condemned. He said that he would be beaten and flogged, that he would be killed, and that three days later he would rise. And yet even though we know Jesus knew it was happening and it would come, it's shocking when we see it. 
when we see the hearts of men opened up in this way, the religious elite who would treat someone in this kind of way, those who had a piety and a reverence for God would find a way to kill God's king and judge. And it's at this point I want to just start relating to what we see here in this passage, to what we see going on around us. You see, as we consider the suffering of the Lord Jesus, the king and judge, I want to make a general point and then a more specific one. The general thing first. As we see Jesus suffering here, we see around our world a world which suffers. There's always been suffering in the world. We've seen human suffering and we've seen humans being the perpetrators of such suffering. We've seen humans doing much evil and that's what we see in the Lord Jesus here. He faced the evil of an establishment who want to kill him and achieving their aim. Jesus faced that suffering at his trial and further as he was put to death on the cross. And if we back up in Mark into chapter 13, which starts this whole passion narrative, we see that Jesus saying that the world, in verse, would be marked by wars and rumors of wars, of nation rising against nation. You see that in verse 6 and 7 and 8 of chapter 13. We see that there would be earthquakes and famines. And so while we grieve at what we see around us, And why we weep rightly with those who face it. We should expect to see things like that happening in our world. Well, that's the the general point. But I want to make a more specific point. And I want to make a specific point regarding the Christians that we are seeing being persecuted and facing the suffering that we see. And ask, how do we pray for them? So as we've said, Christians are facing terrible suffering in Iraq and other places. The canon Andrew White has spoken of the pressures that are on Christians to convert. The message that they are being told is convert or die. It's very stark. He's told Christians in his congregation that if they do not flee, then they have to be prepared to die for their faith. He spoke last week on Newsnight of people being beheaded, of slaughtered, of being cut in half. And even as we sit here in the West, we've heard David Cameron speaking of Islamic State growing stronger and that we may face them on the streets of Britain. And as I contemplate that, is it not almost unimaginable suffering to think as we live here in our comfortable West? We can't comprehend that we might face suffering such as that. And yet if we read any church history, we see that we are the ones who are living in unreality. Throughout history, Christians have faced such suffering. And so we should face up to how we might respond if we were faced with that for ourselves, for our children. Face up to that as we stand with our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world facing such suffering. So how do we understand what's going on? We remember that there would be suffering, that's a general point. But Jesus also understood that there would be suffering for Christians. In chapter 13 again, in verse 9, he said this. He spoke of disciples being handed over to councils and being flogged. In verse 12, he spoke of brother betraying brother to death. 
He spoke of children rebelling against parents and having them put to death. He spoke of all men hating us because of Jesus. He spoke of suffering in awful dimensions for Christians. Is that not what we see around the world? That's the pattern of life now. As we have seen suffering in the past, so we will see it now and in the future. And as Jesus says this to his followers, see how very different he is to most religious leaders. Most religious leaders say, go and suffer for me, but they do not suffer themselves. You see, we have Jesus here, the Son of God, the King and Judge, who goes before us and suffers before we suffer. That's what we see in his trial and in his death. He suffered for the truth of who he was, and he calls those who follow him to follow in his footsteps. Do you remember the words of Jesus who denied, of, of Peter, sorry, who denied the Lord Jesus? He would later say this, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Or in the words of Jesus, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You see, Jesus called his followers to follow in suffering. And for Iraqi Christians at the moment, that means facing death. For us, it's nowhere near extreme. It may mean being humiliated, being marginalized, being under pressure to compromise, possibly losing our jobs. And yet we are called to follow the Lord Jesus in suffering. And as we read through Mark 13, one of the calls there is to be on your guard. As we face suffering, we are to watch out, to stand firm. In the face of suffering, we are being called to keep trusting in God and holding on to him in the face of persecution and the suffering that will come. So here's one way we can pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can pray that they would stand firm. We can pray for them uh, that they would hold firm in their trust in the Lord Jesus. And that we pray, Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters as they face unimaginable suffering, that they would hold firm. Strengthen them as they face pressure to renounce Christ. Give them strength to stand strong in their faith. We pray they won't compromise in their faith or water down the confession of Christ. Stand firm. Now, it could seem a silly thing to say to people, stand firm in the face. It could seem foolish to say this or glib and naive. And yet the pressure of suffering is that we would compromise or we would water things down or that we would turn away. And yet holding a firm to Christ is what we need to do. It's what we need to do and it's what they need to do. And the reason we can pray this is because of verse 62 of chapter 14. Because Jesus is the Son of God. 
He is the one who will sit at the right hand of the mighty one, who will come on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is the cosmic heavenly king, the judge of this world. And in dying and rising and ascending to life again, he issued a death cry to all those who will stand against him now. And so while we suffer now, we suffer for Christ who is the king of all, who suffered on our behalf, given us an example that we should follow. And so will we stand firm in our confession of Christ? Will we not allow ourselves to be shaken by that? You see, we pray for them that that would be true of our brothers and sisters around the world. And yet we should encourage each other to stand firm, trusting in Christ, the Son of God, not turning away from him. So remind ourselves again this morning who it is that we have followed, who it is that we have put our faith and our trust in. He is none other than the Lord, the Mighty One, the Son of Man who will come on the clouds of heaven. So keep going. Keep holding firm to him in the face of suffering. And if you are writing Jesus off or you're unsure of him, don't judge him like the religious leaders did. Assess the evidence of Jesus and see that he truly is the cosmic heavenly king, the judge of this whole world. You see, how do we start making sense of what we see happening? Well, Jesus gives us an example to follow. We see him suffering. And he calls us to follow on his path. And we see that he is the king of the judge of the world. And so we stand firm in him. Well, let me pray. Father God, teach us to stand firm in Christ. Teach us that he is your son and the cosmic heavenly king and judge. And we pray that this truth would be rooted in our hearts so that when we face suffering, we would not fear what they fear, that we would not be frightened, but that in our hearts we would set apart Christ as Lord. As we and they face suffering for our faith in this way, would we always be ready and able to give an answer to everyone who asks for the hope which we have? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.